the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Timothy Beale is a religious scholar whose deep love of nature was changed forever by a near-death experience. I'm not saying that he loved nature any less, but what for him had been something to be experienced casually, perhaps on a favorite hiking trail, became something very different the day he encountered a full-grown bear on that trail. Miraculously, the bear must have already eaten that day, and so, and so the bear didn't charge, but instead walked back into the brush. Beale's recent book on faithful responses to climate change at one point turns on this life or death encounter in which he realized that dominion over nature was an illusion, that nature might actually exist and be filled with the goodness of God even if there aren't people around to see it or observe it, and that our very vulnerability in within God's creation and thus maintains for us a living connection to everyone around us, to all that God has, to cre has created, and ultimately a connection to God as well. But to get to all that, to get there, Beal had to face the reality that that day on the trail might not have ended well at all. He writes, No longer the denizen of my wilderness imaginary, that bear represented a real world, one in which I was vulnerable, finite, precariously tangential, What we, now, when we watch a movie in my house, and there's a character who is so important to the storyline or is clearly the most famous actor on the screen, we have a word to describe that person. We say that that person has plot immunity, right? <laughs> Meaning they're clearly too important to the whole franchise uh, to, to disappear. It's unlikely in a movie called Captain America that Captain America is likely to get eaten by a monster in the first scene. That's, that's what plot immunity is. The problem, though, is too many characters having plot immunity. Suddenly, the movie starts getting kind of boring when you realize, well, this person is going to be just fine anyway. Sure, okay, the, the special effects are likely to get better and better, but the story is getting farther and farther away from, from reality, farther and farther away from our human experience in which life is precarious and unpredictable and sometimes downright painful. in movies, there is no such thing as plot immunity. I'm sorry to say this, but none of us is so important that the movie wouldn't go on without us if suddenly we were no longer here. And in fact, we all know that the plot could change tomorrow anyway. But I do wonder if in Jesus's trial in the desert, the devil wasn't offering Jesus exactly that plot immunity. 
a kind of power and certainty that, that, you know what, we might expect from the Son of God, a kind of control over the world that we might expect a divine being to have and indeed hope that Jesus would have. Well, the funny thing about this story, one which I think of as being the beating heart of Christian vulnerability, is that even though it's at the heart of who we are, more often than not, we, we set it aside. Oh, oh sure, we, we know the story, we say the words, but how many times in our lives, how many times have our churches, and, and it doesn't matter what church, every church does this, how many times have we fallen for these very temptations? Our words are, are of submission. And faith, that's what we sing about. But you know what we do? Our nonverbals, the way we go about being in the world, are so often about certainty and control. How often have we gone for the small compromise? For the life that is buffered and bubble-wrapped? For the comfortable, the familiar, and the safe? But those things are not what Jesus chose. He could, he could have had power. He could have had a good meal. He could have had plot immunity. But instead, he chose the path of radical vulnerability, of trust and surrender. Now, we can easily imagine what that conversation after 40 days of Jesus being alone in the desert, what that might have gone like. Jesus, turn, I know you're hungry, turn those loaves into, into bread. You're famished. You've earned it. And you know, you can't serve the people of God on an empty stomach. What is this but a temptation to control? Imagine if we never went hungry. Imagine if we could feed not only ourselves, but for all those who go hungry with a wave of the hand. Would you do it? I would do it. I would do it. What if Jesus in that moment could have fixed hunger forever? Well, anyone who has ever fancied themselves a fixer knows that this is a fool's game and that without doing the inner work of faith and fidelity, we humans would have found a way to mess up this little free food arrangement. It's actually a story I think of um, when I'm, remember the old Star Trek, well, the next generation, when, when Picard would go up to the machine and who knows what he would, what was his beverage? Tea, Earl Grey, hot, exactly, well done. You go up and do it, and the machine would just make it. So presumably he could do the same thing. Go up and say, oatmeal, it's there. Rare steak, it's there. So, so that's the science fiction version of it, but even that machine had to have inputs. Things that went into it then created this food that happens magically. Well, even behind that, just as behind every loaf of bread... As behind everything that you will eat today and put into your body is a supply chain. 
and a constellation of relationships that includes us and our bodies and the natural world that God created and every single hand that touched every single piece of that item that made it to market and finally made it to your plate. Was Jesus willing to sever that relationship in order to fill his belly? Think of what he could control if he had said yes to that. But suddenly, Jesus, in that moment, would become a disembodied Savior. Someone whose hunger would not really be hunger. Someone whose pain would not really be pain. So the first temptation was control. But the cost would have been for Jesus to give up his humanity. His, to give up his body, his ability to share with us in hunger and pain and loneliness and cold. Okay, okay, Jesus, I don't agree with that. You do, your, but your decision, I think it's a bad call, but to each his own. But, but the next one you're going to like. Okay, follow me on this. How about this? I'm going to take you up to the top of, let's say, Key Tower. So there you are, you've got the perch, you can see everything, and then you, I, you can jump, jump, and the angels will catch you and will bear you down and carry you down to the ground. Jesus, take the leap of faith. You, you do have faith, don't you? I, I think that one, take the leap of faith, I, I, I think that was meant to burn just a little bit. You don't think the devil isn't passive-aggressive? You don't think the devil is the king of manipulation? You don't think the devil hasn't read every single word of Scripture and knows how to use it to get in and under your skin? What is the temptation here? Now, now some have said that it is a temptation to spectacle to be flashy, to put on the show in the city center and to let our charisma rather than our humility be what drives us. So imagine uh, Jesus leaps onto the backs of angels who just sort of float him on down and the, the best entrance ever, he lands and says, oh, I just arrived with help from my friends, the angels. Thanks for the, thanks for the lift. And then moving on. It's a fine way to begin, but that wasn't what this was about. I think the temptation here is certainty. Take the leap and be certain, be sure that those angels will catch you. The illusion that we are not vulnerable with every step we take, even the most faithful ones. That we will never stumble, that we will never fall, that we will never experience hardship simply because we are faithful. No, faith means that we will take those paths and we will fall into those places. The idea of certainty tells us that we won't trip, that we won't stumble, and that our faith can bubble wrap us against the wild uncertainties of life. But that is not just wrong, it is idolatry. Because if we aren't actually vulnerable, 
If we think that we can just be safe and stay safe forever, then there is no real faith and there is no real courage and there is no real hope. And hope is what turns our trials into something holy and even generative. To live is to fall. It is to suffer. It is to feel pain. And this temptation was nothing less than an alternate path around the cross. That's what certainty really is. But woe to the bubble-wrapped, for they cut themselves off from real life, and even their safety is an illusion. Woe to the disembodied, woe to the bubble-wrapped, but woe also to the co-dependent. The devil had one more thing to offer, a little, a little something, Jesus, a little something, power, power, power over the kingdoms of this world, if he was willing to say where that power came from. You can do a lot of good here, Jesus. You can do a lot of good. Don't say no too quickly. He could have had all that power, but Jesus would then be stuck in a relationship of codependence and greed, and that which is actually at the root of all worldly power. Power apart from love and humility and total vulnerability before God will always be a compromise. It will always be a transaction. What is Christian nationalism? but a codependent relationship between ego and supremacy and power. Here at the, the anniversary of the war in Ukraine, as the, the Russian Orthodox Church has, has supported the invasion, what is that but a deeply codependent relation and toxic relationship between state and church? What was the church of the establishment, us, not too long ago? but a codependent relationship between culture and status. You can have the world, Jesus, but quid pro quo, it wouldn't be about love. It would be about constant jockeying for power. All these wonderful temptations laid out on the table in the desert for Jesus to choose which one or take all three. But of course, it was no deal. Jesus was not willing to trade the gospel of love for something so cheap, so cheap as these things that the devil had to offer. Because Jesus wasn't simply in the desert to prove himself. He wasn't there to face the trials. Jesus had gone to the desert to come face to face with God and ultimately to find freedom. 
And so it sounds to our ears. We think that after 40 days in the desert, one would be so famished that all they want is a bite to eat, that all they want is, a, is some relief from, from, the, from the hardship, the time alone might not have sounded that way at all after 40 days of sitting there with God and being there in a moment of encounter. And perhaps it was actually quite easy for Jesus to say, no thank you. Because ultimately, if the devil is offering control, Jesus is recognizing, you know what? Control is exhausting. And if the devil is offering, offering certainty, well, certainty is kind of numbing. And if the, if the devil is offering power, well, that power is really just codependence. And codependence, let's be honest, is really just kind of stressful, isn't it? They just weren't the treasures that they were advertised to be. And compared to the treasures of the desert the wilderness, the time apart, the time spent in the presence of God, those shiny things suddenly looked less like the spoils of this world and more like cheap trinkets already beginning to show signs of rust. Rust. 